everybody. This is PCO, Perfect Creation One, and you're listening to ESSR, Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Welcome, everybody, to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Scott McLeod here, and we're joined by a man who had many names. He's been under many guises. He's been a proud Quebecer. He's been a pirate. He wrestled under a mask, and now he is a perfect creation, wrestling as one-third of Villain Enterprises as PCO, and thank you for joining us, man. All right, thanks. That's, uh, I really appreciate that. So if people wanted to find you on social media, where would they find you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. My main platform is Twitter. Uh, it's a PC, at PCO is not human. This is the, uh, the interact with everyone on my uh that comes on my feed. I'm really, really interactive there. This is the platform that I use the most. My personal Facebook page is uh, sold out at 5,000 friends. So you have to go to my other page, uh, the fan page, the PCO style page. But what I share on my personal page, I also share on my other page. And Instagram, uh, PCO is not human. But uh, once you... Um, Let's say you follow me on Twitter, you have access by my uh, my profile to all my other uh, social platforms. So just go on Twitter and you'll access everything else. Very good. And you can get uh, the podcast at Suplex Retreat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we're on all good Android podcast sites, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, all of them. But uh, PC, we'll start out with the question we ask everyone that we interview because no matter who we ask, we usually get a different answer with everyone. And that is, why do you love wrestling and where did that passion come from? Well, I was uh, at a really young age. You know, being from Canada, our main sports there, uh, I guess Europe is uh, football or soccer. Okay. Uh, and it's high hockey, uh, where we just say hockey and everybody knows it's high hockey. <laughs> And, and I was, uh, I started when I was like three years old, two and a half, three years old, and I was good at it. And, uh, at 12, got a major injury in my right eye. So I lost my sight of my right eye. So I became, uh, blind, kept my eye, but 90% of the vision is gone. Right then and now I knew I couldn't like the rules of, uh, the NHL National Hockey League, uh, in North America are, they were really strict back then. Now they've changed. Uh, there's a guy called, um, uh, Soderberg, uh, Carl Soderberg, who plays for the, uh, Colorado Avalanche with only one eye. But back uh, in the days, uh, when I was a kid, uh, my career was finished for hockey. So, but every time I had a hockey practice, I knew that I was watching wrestling on TV. And that was something that was interested, interested me as much as hockey. And I, I became hooked to wrestling and, at the age of 14, I told my parents right away, I know what I'm going to be when I'm going to grow up. I'm going to be a pro wrestler. They were pretty discouraged. Yeah, and as you said, you told them you want to be a wrestler and you were going to be a wrestler. And you've wrestled for pretty much every major promotion in the world. You wrestled for the WWE or WWF, as it was known at the time, WCW, ECW, even a brief time in TNA, and now, as people have seen, Ring of Honor. Do you think that wrestling yeah. for so many different promotions like around the world has really helped you like with your experience as a wrestler? I, don't, I really don't think it's the main factor. I think it looks good on the resume that I've worked for mm-hmm. every major companies 
that there is in the uh, in, in pro wrestling. But um, I think uh, how you can achieve success, uh, even with, I've been in the business for so many years, it's just uh, capacity to to accept changes, you know, that the business has changed, that it's not like it used to be. It's totally different from when I wrestled in the 90s or even in the year 2000. It, it has totally changed. The only thing that is the same about pro wrestling is the only thing that's going to stay there forever is going to be the ability to tell a good story. Now the moves are a lot more combos, a lot more... A lot less sellings, uh, like you know, uh, almost uh, a, a pop-up uh, power bomb could be a, just a setup move for a finisher for another move, and that makes like all the other, the older guys or the guys that that have known the business is another way. They think the business is going wrong, but it's just that it's, there's no way we're not going to live without a cell phone it's just the evolution of the sport and once you know that and you accept that that's the the thing that can makes you uh, evolve with the sports and i think my capacity to uh, to adapt and also uh, always i uh, was doing things in the 90s that people were looking at me in a weird way and now it all makes sense to them so I was uh, ahead of my time a little bit with certain things, certain certain way of thinking about the business. I was too much ahead of my time. This time of wrestling is the perfect time for PCO. Fair enough. And you said when you came in in the uh, the nineties, you came into the WWF and one half of the co-workers in the early nineties. Uh, how did it come about that uh, you would be hired? That you got hired by the WWF? I started pro wrestling. I was 16 years old, and I've, I've signed my first contract with WWF. I was uh, 25 years old, which is very, very young. But I had been like, you know, going from territories like, let's say, uh, All Star Wrestling in England, um, South Africa, uh, CWA for Auto Vans in, in Germany, and uh, the Colombians and Puerto Rico, and uh, had been working full time for almost five years, and uh, three years that I was doing like indies, and I went to the uh, Calgary Stampede. Uh, couldn't get booked there, you know. I had like a hard time. So when I caught the break, it was uh, very well due. I think you know I had like paid a lot of dues, and uh, I met Jacques Rougeau in Puerto Rico, and then uh, he saw me uh, wrestle. And then he needed the tag partner. And right when he saw me wrestle in Puerto Rico, he knew uh, that we could achieve great things with the tag team. So he got me a couple of matches, like uh, tryouts. And then I went. And then um, three or four months after, I got the call. And uh, as soon as we started, we had a big impact. And uh, I think three or four months later, yeah, it started in June 93, and in September 93, we were already tag team champions. We were tag team champions. So, yeah, so and it, it went quick, but it's like <laughs> like uh, it, made, it made up for all the efforts and the dues and, <laughs> you know, uh, just sometimes crashing uh, in the whole apartment and things like that with no heat or, 
nothing in it, no fridge, and just putting the milk by the window so it just can get cold. And things like that, and living with people in Salvation, or Salvation Army for three or four months in Calgary because I didn't have enough money to afford a, an apartment by myself, and just just things like that, just the hard dues getting in Puerto Rico, not getting paid for maybe uh, two months, and had to come back home and left the island, and then they called me back, said, "Oh, we're going to give you your money," and then I had to go back and didn't know what to expect, and you knew like the. Brody, uh, Bruiser Brody story had happened there, you know, mm-hmm. got stabbed and, you know, in the dressing room. So it was like just thinking, what what am I getting into it, you know? And I was going <laughs> yeah. back to Ireland anyways, and I believed. And they were good with me after that. So I can't complain. They gave me all my money and they never missed a week. It was not a lot of money, though. It was tough living on the island. Pretty violent place and it's pretty, uh, crazy place and then wrestling there like four or five times a week and it was good to eventually uh, get signed by a, a huge company like the WWE. Yes, and you and Jack would make an immediate impact as part of the Quebecers where within the space of a year you would hold the tagging titles on three separate occasions. Do you have fond memories of that run and how was Shaq as a tag team partner? I remember, yeah, I've got a a few memories, you know. I remember the first time when we won the, the titles, the first night. Uh, it was a Monday Night Raw. It was at the Manhattan Center live against the Steiner Brothers. And uh, it was a, a dream, you know, come true for me. And uh, going back to the uh, hotel room, oh, we just talked about all the different spots, different things that we did in the match. And we were so hyped up about getting uh, a chance to carry those belts for a while with the company that um, we didn't sleep all night. We were too excited, too much adrenaline. We, we, the whole night, we just couldn't sleep. Just talk and talk about the match and what was coming up and what we had accomplished and what we had like put as efforts. Because before, when we knew we were going to sign with the WWE, we had set up a ring in a ba- in Jacques' backyard, and we were practicing different things every day, and uh, and then when we started uh, on the actual territory, we were really ready, and that's why I think we made such an impact. That's 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 from The other one was WrestleMania, just being on mm-hmm. Wrestle Madison Square Garden in New York. That was great too, and many other things. You know, we we were so competitive between ourselves me and him that we would like as a hobby you know just before wrestling if we had time sometime just go and play tennis and <laughs> we were so competitive against each other that one time like he uh, like tore his ankle because he was trying to make the not to lose against me or <laughs> it was just like sometimes we'd go and we have like a big fight over you know <laughs> rules and no, it, it did touch the line. No, it did not touch the line. It was like really crazy competitive between uh, me and Jock. So it was sometimes it would get a little bit like toxic, you know, it was so competitive. But yeah. at the end, now when I'm looking back, now I'm laughing about those stories. Uh, it's fun. Now it's good souvenir, but at some point, tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does sound like they were good times, but. 
Was it? Were you at all worried when uh, the run as a team came to an end and you were now a singles competitor in the WWF? I was. Uh, I would always like to. Uh, my goal was to be a, a single competitor. I mean, I was willing to do whatever it took. Uh, if it meant going by uh, the tag team division before I get, you know, in a uh, single solo run, well, I was going to do that as a uh, like kind of stepping into this, into getting, let's say, on the uh, higher on the card. Mm-hmm. So I always was good in tag teams. I always did very good. I had other partners before, but my goal was always to be uh, a single competitor yeah, and in your time as a singles competitor in 95 you would uh, enter into a feud with Bret Hart while and while the uh, reasons for this feud over a stolen jacket may be questionable but uh, I've heard meant nothing but good things about the matches and Bret Hart himself is renowned for being one of the better technical wrestlers uh, in the business so how was it getting to step into the ring with someone like Brett, who is very well respected? Yeah, it was uh, that was great. That's that's uh, a time in my career where I've learned the most. You know, uh, many things with Brett. I've learned a lot, and uh, I I was so uh, happy to be in a feud uh, with him because he was a little bit of like a, a, a hero for me like uh when i grew up i was already watching on you know, watching uh art foundation on tv and i really like um i really liked their matches against the british bulldogs and many other tag teams but especially the ones with the bulldogs and i, I thought the bulldogs especially down on my kid was like ahead of his time too like he was really quick and, and fast and he was doing like a lot of things from uh, top ropes and or second ropes like dropping the knee or something that looks very dangerous but in the meantime could, could have been I think very safe mm-hmm. so uh, I was really impressed with the way they worked the four of them especially Brett and the kid and um, getting to work with him as after he had a run as a world champion that was like awesome to me and, and then i thought i was really on the uh on a way of you know achieving what i always wanted to achieve since it was to become the world heavyweight champion of the federation so uh i thought i was right on uh on target and then i was just making uh the moves that i had to to make and then uh if you was with brett it's probably uh, one of the top three uh, most memorable uh, time of my career in WWE. And, yeah, all those matches, the Henry Rouse's matches, uh, that a few, uh, just not, everybody's talking about the three, but I did another one in Nashville, Tennessee, and mm-hmm. the, a few uh, matches on Raw to, against Brett, and uh, they're all uh, there, you know, great, great, uh, great souvenirs. Yes, and you would uh, take some time away from uh, the WAF for a couple of years, but then you would return in 98, and it was during that time that you would take part in the often criticised Brawl for All tournament. I'm curious, was this something that was uh, allowed people on the roster to volunteer for, or were people selected, and what are your thoughts on the tournament? Yeah, it, it was tough on uh, a lot of guys. It was a lot of injuries. Aside from injured, uh, 
Steve Williams got injured badly, like uh, torn his uh, muscle on his leg. I think it was the uh, bicep of the leg or the quads. Broken jaw. A lot of guys like, had the problems with their necks and things like that. And uh, I don't think it was a great idea, but it was something that I think I was asked to be part of it because uh, I had a lot of... Uh, grudges back then against Kevin Nash and Shawn Michaels and those guys and I think they wanted to know if I was going to back off you know, or if I was like going to step in into uh, that type of competition where uh, they gave like Steve Williams Dr. Death like he was training in Japan for three months and that was basically set up for him to win this whole thing and uh, yeah. and it came about like just I think Bradshaw and Bruce Pritchard talking in a bar. And Bradshaw was kind of bragging about that. If it was real fights, like, he would be the king of the dressing room. And then he kind of went on with this project. And uh, they gave me a week notice. Like They called me up. It said that Vince had a great idea for me. And then they tell me what it was. It was like a shoot fight, a real fight with boxing gloves and three rounds and what what was going to be like 16 guys and then uh, how much money we're making per fight and how much money you can make if you win the whole thing, which at the end of the whole thing, you can make like $200,000 if you win everything, which was what Bart made in about a month, a month and a half. I don't know how long it lasted on TV, but I know first when they first called me up for my first fight, and I brought uh, an MMA coach with me because I didn't want to have just a generic coach because I didn't know nothing about takedowns and things like that. I didn't know nothing about amateur wrestling. And they put me right away against Steve Williams, who was designed to win this whole thing because he had played in the NFL, which is uh, a tough sport. And then you have his coach, who's is well-known from the uh, – Oakland Raiders saying that, you know, nobody can go through Steve Williams because he had like a hundred hundred stitches one time and finished the practice and how tough he was and that he would never back down from anybody. And so my first fight was against him and uh, I brought a coach with me and then they said, no, it's not going to be this week. Finally, it's going to be next week. So I bought his plane tickets and paid him and I had to repay him and rebuy the plane tickets and the hotels. So uh, I didn't bring him for the second time, uh, second time around, which was the real time. So I didn't know if I was going to bring him again. If he was going to cancel it again just to play with my head, I guess. It's just, you know, testing people. Uh, that was a lot of things that they used to do there in WWE, the WWF. So I said, I'm just going to go with the flow. Whenever it happens, it happens. And, and um, you know, I think I did pretty good. Didn't get knocked out or anything like that. Did pretty good. And Steve Williams was on his way to win the whole thing, like on his fight against Bart Gunn. He was leading on the points. It was only, I think, 15 seconds left in the fight when he got really knocked out out of nowhere by Bart. And then he went through the... That's how he tore his legs up, and that's how he got his jaw broken. And uh, the rest of the history, Bart yeah. knocked out Bradshaw, knocked out also... Uh, I think it was Savio. No, Savio did good. He knocked out the the whole train. What was the name? Um, the Godfather. Godfather. Yes, yeah. sorry, I've got confused. Knocked out pretty giant guys. You know, six six. Mm -hmm. 
300 pounds and over or, you know, guys with solid reputation. And that is cool because Bart was like always kind of bragging about how tough he was. Like when we mm-hmm. went to the restaurant and things like that, he used to travel a lot with the with Billy and Bart and the guns and uh, Bob Ali and those guys. And he was always saying that if he had a chance, you know, go against the Sheik, which is a bronze medalist in the Olympics, that he would kick his ass. And we, we <laughs> couldn't believe that. And then when he won the whole thing, well, mm-hmm. he finally, you know, put his uh, action where his mouth was, which was kind mm-hmm. of happy for him. Yeah. Uh, it was good that he won it, but unfortunately history has not been kind to, to him or to the tournament in general. And no. Like, nobody, I don't, I don't think anybody knows that Bart won, and I don't think a lot of people know that he got knocked out on the pay-per-view. I think it was WrestleMania or yeah. SummerSlam. I don't yeah, I mean, we remember here at ESSR because uh, I have an older brother, and the running joke is of us being the gun brothers, him being Billy and me being... Bar and it's mainly used as a bit of a, a running joke that okay, but uh, Bart is not the big thing. They, they saw big things in Bart after that tournament. They wanted to uh, they wanted them to fight Mike Tyson and Butterbean was just to be was supposed to be just a stepping stone for him to get to Mike Tyson, which didn't mm-hmm. work. Didn't know that, but yeah, I did think I did think it was unfair that part of your character you were required you were wearing an eye patch as part of your character and. I don't think it was a bit unfair to you to, I believe you had to keep wearing the iPad during the fight, which I think is a bit of a disadvantage to be fair in a tournament like this. Yeah, and of course, the game plan for the other fighter is just hit him on the good eye. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But I just show uh, I had guts and I wouldn't back down from anyone and uh, how much, you know, how bad I wanted to make it in this business. And, uh, and I think a lot of guys pulled back from this tournament, like Shamrock. Mm-hmm. And one saying, like, I'm not going to swing uh, with 300-pound guys that I can't, you know, have my ground game put on, you know. It's, it's either a takedown or, you know, mm-hmm. a match, basically. So Ken Shamrock refused to be part of it. And uh, a lot of guys said no. A lot of guys yeah. didn't wanna have anything to do with that. And, yeah, Savio Vega was one of the guys who injured his neck. He did good, but he injured his neck. And then uh, Draws also had a little injury. Mm-hmm. And uh, a bunch of other guys got injured. Yeah, but uh, in around about 2000, uh, towards the end of the 90s, you would wrestle for like likes of ECW and WCW once again. But... Obviously, we know that those two promotions would close at the start of 2001. And you mentioned uh, some of your issues that you'd had with people within the company. But once uh, WCW and ECW closed, was there still hope that at some point you would go back to the WWE and there would still be a place there for you? Yeah, I mean, they tried. I mean, 98, 99, we signed another deal. We signed for four years, and I did two, and Jock did one. Because they're. They, when they give a long contract, they always like yeah, a window. Let's say the contract rolls for the whole year, but let's say you sign in December. Well, three months before they can give you a notice, even though if you have signed for four years, they always keep like a window open. So I rolled through my second years, and they didn't re-sign. Drug was signed for another year, but when that window appeared, to them, they sent him his release, and 
so I had kind of confidence that they wanted to do something good with me because they kept me. But they sent to uh, Memphis, uh, which at the time was the kind of um, OVW at the time. It was interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I was there with Kurt Angle, with uh, Fatu Rikishi, with um, uh, the, Hoos- <laughs> the Hoosos were kids, though they were coming with their dad. But um, uh, two-minute warnings were there to uh, ECMO and uh, Rosie, uh, the two cousins, and uh, bristled a lot with them over there. It was about 10 Samoans. Uh, I mean, the family was there, but they were all cool and good. And, um, yeah, and Kurt and uh, St- Stephen Bradley was a great talent that they never used and they forgot that they sent him to puerto rico at one point and they forgot him there for a year they didn't remember they had sent him to puerto rico which is kind of weird to me <laughs> the guy was so talented too like i never understood why he never made it to the uh, main roster but it, yeah uh that didn't really work out for me so uh I was uh, released by half for my release at the end of uh, the second year. So I wanted to try in WCW. Uh, they gave me my, my uh, they released me on my demand. I went and I had a few matches. Uh, I was teaming with you, Morris, build them up a little bit. Because I had met, I worked with him before in 91 in Japan for Wing. So, uh, but that didn't come through either. So uh, just had a little run with Ben Storm and Team Canada. Another little run with Jacques in 96 before we signed back with Vince, which didn't really went good as well. So it was some tough times right there. Yeah, yeah. and you went to wrestle uh, a couple of matches for TNA, albeit you know, under a mask. And I heard you in another interview saying about how you did uh, French voiceovers for yeah. TNA. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that and like more deal a bit more about what that entailed and how you got that job. Well, um, the uh, voiceovers TNA was in uh, Montreal, which is in Canada, which I like a French section uh, in Montreal, mm-hmm. like a part of Montreal where they speak French and and a part of the province of Quebec was is totally French. There's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Six million people that are French, so that like a little bit like like in Puerto Rico, like the French culture, so French TV stations and things like that. And uh, that's where this is. Uh, I got hired by a French TV station to do the voiceovers in French. And uh, it was someone that I met in Puerto Rico actually that was in charge of finding the commentators for for the program. And that's where he came on a uh, on vacation in Puerto Rico, and we met. He asked me if I wanted to do this and try this, and I, and I went for a tryout and I got the job, and I was paid really, really well. I mean, I was, I was paid much more money doing that than working sometimes seven days a week for for a promotion for one hour of work. Mm-hmm. I was making good money, so I did that for three. Years. Because it was an hour a week with very good money, and uh, I I had fun, but it's not what I wanted to to accomplish. It's not where I wanted to be. I thought I was too young for that. I needed to finish up things that I when I start something, I want to finish it, 
And I just, I just mm-hmm. want to start something and just leave it out and not achieving my goals. So after three years, I told them that I was going to, you know, um, make this comeback in WWE. Well, it was no basically that were yeah. big enough so you could make a good living back then. Yeah. And uh, they said, uh, okay, because my plan was to go back to England for all-star wrestling and then from there, um, you know, sending stuff to the WWE and getting back there. And uh, you're starving in England, basically. You're not making great money. And, you know, you're, you you got to share rooms with other guys and mm-hmm. house with other people, you know, and so the dishes is always dirty and <laughs> you know, things like that or fight yeah. over a bigger bed or the better room. And I uh, told the uh, management at the TV station that I was going to leave and they said, well, we can keep the job for three months. So if things don't work out, you can always come back here and told the guy my boss i told him if i do that it's just basically i'm telling you that i don't believe in myself you know so if i do believe in myself i'm gonna burn the ships you know i'm, I'm gonna mm-hmm. i'm not coming back here and i burned by ships and uh, just to make sure i was gonna fight you know and all the way to my goal and things didn't work out <laughs> so so i had to do something else uh, but Eventually, you know, it did work out. So, but it was just uh, another, another step in the way, you know, another obstacle. And it does sound like a good deal back, and completely understand your reasons for wanting to leave and wanting to pursue your goals. But uh, before you'd become the PCO character that we we know you as now, you would take a few years uh, away from the business. You officially retired in twenty eleven. I was hoping you could tell us very particular reasons behind that decision. Well, it's just it wasn't like a big retirement thing. It's just that uh, I just did like a, re- a big radio show in Montreal, and the uh, the host was asking me where was I going now with my wrestling career, and well, I just you know I've tried about everything, you know, been to motion <laughs> and and uh, to me. It, even that burning desire was still there in my heart. I didn't know from where to start. I didn't know where to go, what to do, what was going to be the next move. Because at that point, all the doors were totally closed in front of me. I mean, it was no other way around. So I just, I told the, the host, I said, uh, I think, I think it's, looks like it's over to me. I mean, uh, I'm going to just like, uh, take some time off and regroup and try to do something else with my life. But I mean, it's just like, just the way it appears, like all the doors were totally closed. It didn't work out with WWE. WCW was out. Ring of Honor at that time, they weren't paying that great money. I mean, a lot of the guys that I knew that were there were barely making a living and they had to do other indie promotions to make it. And, uh, I didn't have, you know, a work permit or anything. So everything was like complicated. And it, it, it seems like all, there was no other options. The indie territories were down on you. There was no place really to get booked. You know, didn't, there wasn't much in Canada. So I, I took some time off, 
and I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Karate Kyokushin, and started to do trampoline courses, work on a moonsault, uh, work on a backflip, work on different things. And it's just trying in my mind just to <laughs> just improve as a wrestler, even though I wasn't going to wrestle anymore. I, I don't know why, but I always liked wrestling. So everything that was similar to wrestling was I got interested by it. Like, so I went on and I did that. And then, uh, yeah, eventually I met Destro and, uh, well, I had already started my comeback. You know, mm-hmm. and I guess if you want to know the, the way it happened, like, I was doing like videos on YouTube and I was just like making, uh, let's say, talking, making predictions for a pay-per-view, pay-per-view or analyzing the last pay-per-view and, and I was doing that in French and that got me uh, quite a buzz and then promoters started to ask me if I wanted to wrestle. I said, no, it's, it's impossible. I mean, I'm trying to get away a little bit from that and now everybody wants me to wrestle and I said, well, I'm going gonna, gonna to try. And then I did one big show in uh, Ontario, Canada, and uh, it was on a big, big channel, big YouTube channel, a lot of followers on the, uh, you probably know that channel, it's the uh, Annable TV channel. There's a lot of interviews there, a lot of, uh, a lot of things. He's, he's got a lot of followers. And uh, so anyways, I, I did a match for his promotion and got noticed in the United States and then... Then I got booked in Indiana for Black Label Pro. And I had watched a guy that was going to work, which was uh, Holly Goethan Page. Mm-hmm. Now he's with him back. And I thought he was very, very good. I was on my way to Indiana, and there was a snowstorm in, in Montreal. So I barely, I, I was sitting down the flight for six hours before we took off. And I made it to the show 15 minutes before my match. And I, mm-hmm. I Really quick with Paige. And George Anela was in the stands, but he was on the car because he was watching the match. He had such a, a good match that Joey was so impressed that he wanted to sign me up for the spring break, George Anela spring break. It was for me. So that's how it all started. Yeah, and it does seem like you said with all the doors being closed, it does seem like you came back at the, the right time with Ian scene being as, as big as it is right now. Uh, before we talk about that, I'd ask about uh, PCO as a character, about where the idea or the inspiration gave it and how you met uh, Destro. Yeah, well, I already had like uh, done a bunch of matches in 2017, and then that was January 13, 2018, when I did the show in Indiana. The Joey there, and then he had me booked for WrestleMania 34, Georgia Spring Break 2, uh, GCW. And Indy wasn't that, that exploded yet. Indy just exploded after WrestleMania 34. It was still pretty, you know, I'd say bad. You know, it wasn't that that great of a buzz on the Indy scene yet. Like, not, that, not as we know it now. So just at the beginning, October 2017, I met this Joe. I saw him coming out of the gym and I went up to him and I started talking with him. Well, about 10 years or 15 years prior to that, I already asked him if he wanted to do like something with me. 
But back then it was like 300 pounds. So you got to divide that by, four, by 14 to find out in stones. But it was about 300 pounds, which, and he's um, a strong man. He's, he's, uh, he's known being the best in the world on the uh, all time strongman feats of strength. So it's like things like bending nails, uh, bending a penny, uh, torn uh, decks of cards, uh, or a bottle of water, and uh, you know, things like that, bending steel bar. So uh, he had lost uh, 168 pounds of body weight so he was and he kept it up for 12 years so that was the first time he said he was not interested by pro wrestling second time he said i'm going to train you so i just went to see him as a trainer as a coach not as mm -hmm. someone that would be beside me or that would help me or be my creator or anything like that so we start doing like trainings and things like that. And then uh, I told him about my match coming up against Walter. And uh, sometimes he was like holding out the cameras for me to uh, shoot promos for indie, different indie companies. And uh, he said, there's something missing. You know? Maybe you should do like uh, feats of strengths, you know, like the wrestlers they used to be. With, a lot of wrestlers used to get over big time by doing that. I said, well, you're going to have to teach me how to do that. So we started focusing on the, my grip and my hands. And uh, eventually was able to uh, rip a deck of card in a half. So this was, that was probably the first promo that I did for Walter. And then I, I did the steel bar around my neck. And then I did like two or three. And eventually uh, I was doing abs in a cage squat on straps and he was hitting me with a fry pan on the chest and then eventually I I get tired of it and I grabbed the fry pan and I rolled the fry pan and when I got out of the straps that was doing my abs in it he I was walking and my back was was watching my back as I was walking to, away from him and he said you walk just like Frankenstein and Flat right there, and he's a big uh, monster horror movie, horror movie monster guy. He really, uh, he's really into all that, uh, especially Frankenstein's. Uh, was a big fan of Frankenstein's movie, and he, he thought that I walked like him, that my uh, the way that I I move my body and everything that is purely mm -hmm. Frankenstein. So we went on. We went on with the the car battery, the jumper cables, and the whole thing, and everything like took off. Yeah, and it's definitely a very interesting uh, idea as a character. And we've seen uh, you kind of change your style a little bit uh, since your return. You're not afraid to go up to the top rope, and that. Do you think this character and the way you've started your kind of new style of wrestling kind of helps set you apart from? The, all the wrestler, other wrestlers on anything because there are a lot of uh, very capable wrestlers, but it's all a bit a case of kind of I guess having to stand out. Yeah, yeah, big time. It's very unique, and uh, and it matches my style, which is yeah, okay, powerful guy, strong guy, but mostly a guy that can endure pain. Uh, mm -hmm. this, this is you know I was always known for taking crazy bumps and uh, taking a lot of risk, head bumps, neck bumps, odd side bumps, all kinds of crazy thing. 
And now I, it's like I can't always uh, show my courage or determination just coming back from all those crazy bumps and, and give a battle. And it all makes sense because I'm not human. So mm -hmm. um, yeah. finally it gives me the character that it's not like being a coward or, you know, to cheat in the the back of the ref and then be afraid of the, of the, the other guy on the other side. It, it gives me that toughness that the guy who's going to stand in your face or willing to take pain and injure all kinds of things and, uh, and, and get back at you, you know, no matter what, I'll back up. So it relates. It's a good analogy to what I lived in this business since day one. It's really my life. And in the meantime, it's the character that I really enjoy because it's who I am as a person. That's me. So I'm not character. We say it's a character for wrestling, yeah. but it's really myself. And since I was probably 14, 15 years old, every time that I got banged up or injured and I was a fast healer and uh, the uh, I never listened to any doctors. I was always my own doctor. I always knew what I was going to do for rehab exercises without going to physiotherapy or anything like that i just did my i just did everything my way and all the doctors to, to all always said uh, i was not like they always you're not normal it's nothing normal so not being human it's really totally like myself and and you talk about uh, being able to withstand pain uh, you mentioned that match at georgia spring break two against walter and I think that definitely caused a lot of people to stand up and pay attention to you who may, even if they weren't already familiar with you. And I would say watching that match, it was hard enough to see, just to watch the chops as a fan. Looking at it, I cannot imagine what it must have been like being on the other end of it. But is it fair to say that this is the match that really showed people who PCO was, if they didn't know already? Well, it was already, like, what is, it was like... Not at the beginning of the match, but during the match, it was an instant. I don't know how to explain that eruption of craziness from the fans. I mean, I, I think uh, I had a very cold when I got introduced on my way to the ring. Like it was really, really cold. It felt like Rocky Four being Rocky in in Russia. It felt like that, but. As I was going along in the match, as the match progressed, and I was taking an incredible amount of like uh, pain, like like you said, like exchanging chops with Walter, like trading uh, in every situation, and not going down, and always staying in his face, and then and my chest was purple and red, and mm -hmm. and um, kept going, kept going, and. And then uh, I, th I think it was during one of the, one of the last exchanges that that lasted a long time, where I chopped him all the way to a corner, and he chopped me, chopped me back all the way back to the other corner, chopped him back all the way into the middle of the ring. And then when I started in like uh, moonsault of the top on the outside, springing a legged moonsault, and moves like that, and then the I don't know, like, eventually the fans just all got up at once, and everybody was mm -hmm. 
all the way to the end of the match. It just uh, it went from one pole to the other pole where it, it was ecstatic. And then Twitter d d was buzzing. And then that got me booked onto uh, Battle of Los Angeles, Bolux. The fans wanted mm -hmm. part of Bolux so bad that the promoter had to call me and put me on the show. Uh, PWG, which is one of the greatest um, mm -hmm. in the windows for pro wrestlers. And, and then also was the, the time where it was all in, too long after that, where Cody, Cody uh, got the belts when they called this, the NWA belt, but they had put like, uh, who would you want to fight Nick this with the NWA title? And it really like was PCO, PCOs. It was like a huge, huge buzz. And then I, I got booked all over the United States and mm -hmm. even Germany and even like England a little bit. And I had, I had bookings like four days a week. I was booked solidly full time for the whole year of 2018. Yeah, good. And eventually, we mentioned Art Ring of Honor a little earlier on. You exclusively signed with them at the end of 2018, and you make your debut alongside Brody King, uh, teaming up with Marty Scurll's now Villain Enterprises. How did the uh, the deal with Ring of Honor come about? And when you signed, was it always a part plan that you would come in as? one part of Bell and Enterprises, or did that come later? Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, uh, when I quit the, the commentary, commentary job of TNA, 2007, I went to England for All-Star Wrestling. And there was two guys just starting up there, Marty Squirrel and Nick Aldis. They were pretty new to the business. And from what they've been telling me lately, the guys that had been in the show treated them like rookies and didn't really care about them. And every time I was working with them, I would make sure I do my best to give them a great match and to have a great match with them. And I always value their comments and their ideas in the business. And that's how also talking about evolving. Well, if, you, if you're working guys with the new, this new generation, their ideas want to be certainly maybe better or as good as mine because, you know, they grew up with the, this time of wrestling. So I, was, I already, already valued their ideas, their, their knowledge on pro wrestling and give them, like, as much attention of anyone else in the business, not just veterans. And when I went back home and nothing worked out for me, you know, I thought, well, Probably wasted my time in England during that whole year. Mm -hmm. Nothing out. And then Marty was the first one who reached out to me to see if, oh. I had, if I had a contract or anything like that. So he had reached out to me two or three times and just just exchanging texts. It's friendly. And I thought it was pretty cool, but I didn't think of anything. And eventually, Ring of Honor reached out to me. And then, then it got really serious. And then they're talking about Villain Enterprises, about you know, being a, a trio with Marty and Brody King. Uh, I said, man, that's chemistry is going to be unbelievable because Marty, I knew him from England, so I knew I knew the guy already. So that was, I was kind of, well, you know, you never know. Like sometimes we do things in life thinking, well, that's down the drain. Never, nothing good's going to come out of that. And it's been like a few times that, I just said to Marty, thanks. 
and and Brody King, I've worked against him during the whole 2018 MLW, different other promotions. We had feuds and things like that, so I knew how good of a wrestler he was, and mm-hmm. who was a, a guy, how cool he was too. So I I knew when they they shoot the idea of villain enterprises to me, Ring of Honor, to me it was a good fit because I knew the guys and. The only thing that was tough is like I had other offers on the table from other companies, but at that time it felt good to to go with that option. So I I made my mind and I signed with them. And I think it's fair to say you have been quite successful together as a trio, uh, winning the six fan tag team titles. Uh, you brought it for a time were the Ring of Honor tag team titles, and that took you. As far as the four way, you returned to Madison Square Garden, where, as you said, you'd competed at WrestleMania. Yeah. And you and Brody recently won the Crockett Cup to become the new NWA Tag Team Champions. Uh, I wanted to ask about that because the Crockett Cup is a term that goes back years, it has all this history. So, how much of a big deal was it for you and Brody to win and now being the NWA Tag Team Champions? Uh, it was a big deal because uh, the previous winners of the Crockett Cup were Dusty and Nick Dakoloff, the Road Warriors. I mean, Lex Luger and uh, Sting, I believe. I mean, if you look at, you know, who had been winning the Crockett Cup and who had been NWA World Tag Team Champions before, I mean, it's just a great part of history there, you know, it's, it's something that you can never take away after it's done, you know, it's now we have to defend it, but it's it's done, you know, so it's it's there. And that's that's an achievement by itself, which is, is one of the greatest achievements of my career. And uh, the year 2019 is probably one of the most successful year of my whole career, I mean, like you said. Six men world tag team champions, our wage tag team champions, defending the belt at the sold out Madison Square Garden, kind of stealing the show at the Madison Square Garden, uh, you know, uh, with the entrance, with the electric chair and the uh, big yeah. power bomb on the cement floor uh, that I took. And then I sat out and then went back out and people crying in the crowd, things like that. And then the NWA World Tag Team Champion and then the Crockett Cup. I mean, this got to be my most successful year of my entire career. And it happens in a kind of a late in my career, but I'm at my best right now. So uh, I'm on a roll too. So it's, it's great. Yeah, now you mentioned that entrance. I was really cool entrance I thought when I watched the show. Now that you are the NWA Times, I mean, you mentioned Nick Aldis. He's now in his second reign as NWA World Champion. And he's uh, made it his mission to take that around the world, make it a prestigious championship. As far as you and Brody go with the uh, the time tales, is there any, any teams out there that you have your eye on to as potential candidates for future title opportunities? Uh, not really. I think we're the champions right now. So let's see uh, who get, we're going to throw as contenders. Uh, it could be coming from other federations because it's NWA. They have their their own talents, even though they're working with Ring of Honor on a regular base. You know, like I think every TV shows uh, NWA is involved, which I think gives a little bit more notoriety to NWA because they're 
you know, affiliated with a major wrestling organization now. So it gives uh, back the prestigious the prestige that they used to have. So it's kind of, it, it brings it back up now. The fact that they're uh, affiliated with a big promotion like ROH. So it's, it's cool because it's bringing back a lot of competition. So whoever is coming for the titles, I mean, now I don't really have dream matches and things like that. Mm-hmm. As we said about Ring of Honor, your deal is kind of exclusive to them, but we did recently see uh, your associates in Villain Enterprises, Brody and Mari, teaming as part of New Japan recently as part of their Super Juniors tour. Uh, do you have any desire in the future to possibly wrestle for other promotions like possibly New Japan? Yeah, maybe. We'll see how everything uh, evolves. The thing is that I didn't want to rush anything about going to Japan. I want to do it right. I want. I really want, as long as the, the way it goes right now, the fans... They come up with those dream matches for me with the New Japan talent. With, uh, whether it's uh, Suzuki or Ibushi or Naito or Okada. I mean, they, all, I've seen all kinds of uh, Hishi. I've seen all kinds of names drawn with my names and they always tag New Japan. So, and, and I've got more and more followers, uh, from Japan. Uh, that follows the the Monday Night PCO Industrial and follows me what I'm doing with Ring of Honor and watching clips and tapes and uh, on YouTube or on Twitter, social medias. So it's just been building up, building up for the demand of PCO. And I think I've seen a lot of guys that have signed with Ring of Honor uh, because they, as, as much as they wanted to be part of Ring Honor, of Honor, they wanted to be part of New Japan. And they knew that they had, like, um, uh, an agreement together. And uh, it was door for them to get to New Japan Pro Wrestling. And I'm talking like a guy like Brody King that never ride the fact that he always was a big fan of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Ben Vito is a big fan of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Had been in Japan before when an all-star uh, no, I'll start with all Japan Pro Wrestling was on top, you know, when it was uh, uh, Kawada and Masawa and uh, Kobashi, all those guys were on top. And I worked with all of them. It was 2001. I was there for 30 days. So it's not like I've never been there and I don't know what to mm-hmm. do there. So I'm just, I just want to have the, I, I just want it to be done right and to be done in a way where we will respect the PCOs, not human, the French Canadian Frankenstein. Just, just really play that in a big way. And mm-hmm. if I go there, that's what I want. I want it to be done with a lot of attention, you know, and uh, make it right and have a huge impact. It's just to go there, to go there, I'd rather not go. But if it's to mm-hmm. go there with a huge impact, I'm more, uh, you know, I'll be more willing to go and to talk to them. Enough, PCL. Thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, before we go, if you want to remind people one more time about where they can find you on social media. Yeah, well, like I said, you if you follow me on on Twitter at PCO is not human, and you can follow the uh, Monday night PCO Destro every Monday, and um, like I said, I do interact a lot 
with all the people that are coming on my feed and also on Instagram, PCO is not human. It's building up day after day. It's growing and um, it's good. And um, you can also go on PCO Style on Facebook, my fan page, my personal pages. Sold out as of now. Uh, sometimes I try to, uh, you know, what I say, like delete less interactive people to try to make room for more people that would interact with me. I try to be very interactive on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, Instagram is kind of tougher for me, but it's a good place to see stuff. Uh, but the interaction is kind of harder for me. But uh, also on YouTube, on uh, Pierre Carvalet, PCO, all the videos that are f first shown, well, the first, you know, the big thing is Twitter. And once it's been shown on Twitter, eventually I put them on my YouTube channel. So they're all there episode by episode. So I think now we're, we'll be shooting episode 62 uh, next month. So uh, it's going to be more, more than a year, a uh, week, which is pretty, pretty good. Every Monday, you don't miss one. Always. So, yeah, uh, you're all welcome to follow me on those platforms. And I'm looking forward to interact with you. And I just want to personally thank you, Scott, for giving me the opportunity to be on, on, your, um, on your podcast. And um, I appreciate that. Well, we appreciate uh, you being on the show with us. And... As you said, episode 63, you said, or 62. yeah. So if you just want to check that out, you, you heard them on where to find that. And you can find us at Suplex Retreat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and on all good Android podcasting sites, Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, the list goes on. Once again, PCO, thank you for joining us. All right, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Listen, cunts, I don't care what the fuck you think you're doing. Whatever you think is more important with your life, you honking bag of dick tips. You know what you should be doing? You should be going online, you should be subscribing, you should be listening to the back catalogue of Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Whatever the fuck you're doing, that's what you should be doing. I don't care if it's your mum's birthday, I don't care if she's feeling contractions. Get on it right now!